The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. I'm John Plunkett and on today's show, more details emerge as Rupert Murdoch splits his News Corporation business into two. Netflix is diagnosed with arrested development after the return of the show garners well mixed reviews and its share price takes a dive. And Rebecca Nicholson tells us why history on TV is indeed a laughing matter with reviews of psycho bitches, up the women and the return of horrible histories. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And joining me this week is former director of the Press Complaints Commission, Stig Abel, now a partner at the Pagefield Consultancy, and media talk regular Maggie Brown. Welcome both. Hello. Maggie, you bring back exciting news from the States, not entirely media related. No. Well, do you want me to talk about twitching? More twitching. Yes, I can. That was the I point can, of the question, I can, Maggie. I can reliably inform you. What other non media I've seen a non extinct form of life, apart, that's apart from newspapers. Uh, and, and, and it was a, a piping plover. <laughs> a piping plover? Yes, a piping plover overwinters in the Gulf of Mexico and then it. It comes to, to nest in tiny little areas of Lake Michigan, Lake Superior and Lake Huron. And there aren't many piping plovers left. No, and I just happen to be sitting almost, I think, on top of its nest. I'm, I hope I didn't disturb it too much. But they're, they're, they're <laughs> There's one fewer piping plover now. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly got very cross. So, uh, and uh, Stig, um, no birds, but um, uh, maybe a cup of uh, hot piping uh, coffee. Well, I was pleased to see Twitter uh, enthralled with the notion of Guardian Coffee being launched, which I understand it is, is from a container in Shoreditch, so you're targeting the, the trendy East London community, as it ever, is. as you do in the newspaper. Always. And I believe they're going to be flocking to Shoreditch to taste their Guardian coffee. And is it free? No, 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 they, you charge for it, and that's what makes it very uncomfortable. A flat Mike White was one of the uh, jokes that uh, was going around Twitter to the delight of many. Very good, but skinny lattes, maybe not? The skinny lattes, what they were saying, that it goes against the Guardian's deeply held view about inappropriate body images, so we don't want to mention skinny at all at any point in the coffee ordering process. Well, media talk uh, coming from the Guardian's new coffee house in Shoreditch uh, some week soon, I've got no doubt. But we start this week with News Corporation. Rupert Murdoch's business is to be split into two separate companies from the 28th of June, it's been revealed. And on Wednesday, he told shareholders in New York more about his plans. He admitted to making spectacular mistakes in the past, but went on to say and this is not in the accent he used, I've been given an extraordinary opportunity most people never get in their lifetime, the chance to do it all over again. Stig, uh, 82 years old, and he's going to do it all over again. Yeah, I can't believe he's going to do it entirely all over again. I mean, it's interesting that he's splitting the company into the two parts, with the publishing not pro- not very, very profitable part and the very profitable 21st Century Fox, which is the film and TV. Uh, and Robert Thompson, uh, the, the, ge- the whole general of the, the publishing arm, we spoke to investors and talked about a dramatic uh, pursuit of cost-cutting that's going to take place uh, in the publishing arm. So for the journalists who, who would have been hearing that after what's really been an extraordinarily bad year, if you work for a Murdoch title in, in the UK or bad two or three years, it seemed to be a quite a positive start that you'd get your own company and it would be a relaunch again. But the first, literally the first thing that was discussed is a new raft of cost-cutting across the whole business, which may or may not fall in the UK. Not the clarion call you might have hoped for. Well, no, and I, I, it was for, to investors, and I'm sure investors do want to be reassured about that because lots of titles obviously lose a lot of money. The Times loses a vast amount of money, and they do need to turn that around if they're going to try and make uh, that at least come close to, to breaking even. But from a morale point of view, if you're a journalist for a Murdoch title, if the first thing that you hear about the new venture is cost-cutting, it would be a little bit of a, a kick, I'd have thought. 
So Maggie, News Corporation is no more in one sense. We've got the entertainment on one side, which yeah, is going to be 20... Fast, that's yeah. right, that's right. And, and all the publishing on the other side, News Corp. But what's the background to this? Does it all stretch back to phone hacking or does it go back further than that? Or why has why he done it? Well, I think it's because the two categories of assets uh, are producing very different results, as we've just heard, that um, the, the, the publishing side clearly is the old world and perhaps the entertainment and film, which is very profitable but smaller in terms of capital value, um, may well be the future. This isn't actually, though, quite as we expected. As, as I studied it, and indeed as it was being discussed in America, um, more digital assets have been put into the what you might have called the newspaper side um, than people expected. Uh, there are the two uh, Murdoch brothers, Lachlan and James, uh, definitely attached to that side as well. And there's also a poison pill aspect of it to prevent uh, investors coming in and taking or resting control from the Murdoch family. And finally, of course, this possibly opens the gateway to the uh, entertainment, television, Fox News, all the rest of its side, um, having another pop at um, B Sky B, if uh, that is in fact the, the corporate plan. It's, it's one of those uh, moments when you... I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only person who thinks this. How long can an 82-year-old really um, preside over this behemoth? And uh, what on earth is the future really going to hold for the assets uh, contained in, in both sides? Um, it's hard to see this continuing. Furthermore, we know that John Malone is, is gearing up very much um, through his Liberty Media, having purchased Virgin, Virgin Media, to have a go at uh, subscription pay television in Europe, not just in the UK. So uh, there are a lot of challenges around for this organisation, powerful though it is. And Stig, is there a sense that the, that the publishing businesses are being lined up for a sale? I don't know. I mean, there's a sense. I wondered whether you would demerge the companies to try and avoid the risk of contagion going across from phone hacking and all the possible legal ramifications in the States to cross over into the Fox business, which is, which is vastly I think, profitable. I think it accelerated this move, but I, I don't, you don't think, think that caused I don't that. think it was the... No, I think it's more fundamental than that. Well, the thing is... I, it always, it's always been said to me that Rupert Murdoch loves newspapers, always has loved newspapers, and therefore he would not necessarily countenance a sale. But as you say, he's 82 years old. The split of the companies may mean that when Rupert Murdoch goes, his sons don't love newspapers. Uh, James famously despised the news of the world even before any of this happened. Didn't really like, uh, doesn't really feel the sort of news print flowing through him in the same way that, that Rupert does. So... Everything I hear always says that he still retains his love of the game, Rupert, and so that's what would remain uh, for now. But he's 82 years old, and the succession plan is not entirely clear, I don't think, and there's no guarantee that the people who take over from him in these businesses would necessarily want to, to preserve the newspaper on. No, and of course the question is, even if they wish to clean up further in the, in the newspaper business in America by buying more titles, uh, there is a problem of uh, monopoly, and furthermore, there's no clear plan yet really for a newspaper industry revival across the states as far as I can see. I, I was staying in um, Cleveland, Ohio, which uh, has one of the very old newspapers, Plain Dealer, mm -hmm. and even as I was there, it announced it was going from seven days a week to a three-day-a-week operation. You can just see really what the future is. It's fine for catch-ups and for weekend leisurely reading, but uh, everyday news is going to be conveyed online. And actually, when the, it was in Cleveland where those, uh, those women were abducted, and I remember I actually went to the Cleveland Plain Dealer yes, website, website yes. to, to watch the, the, the updates. And in fact, he went to the Guardian website. The Guardian live blog was more or less just redirecting stuff from the Cleveland Plain Dealer website because 
And so when moments like that happen, you do want to have reliable local journalists, but they might become increasingly thin on the ground. It's actually on that one story uh, that the, the local folks of Cleveland have uh, already raised $650,000 to help the three women. And there was also a story about what happened to Castro's now abandoned pet dogs. I think they're all being rehoused or rehomed. Well, that's, that's good to know. Thank you, Maggie. Uh, well, from one breaking news story to another, I guess. It's in other press news, more than 80 people have complained to the Press Complaints Commission after those graphic front-page pictures were published last week of the Woolwich killing. It's something we mentioned in uh, last week's podcast, Dig. Uh, uh, Roy Greenslade uh, issued a staunch defence of, uh, of, of what they did. Uh, you're an ex-PCC man. What was your take? Well, I actually think it's really important to show what happened when it, something like that happens on, on the streets of, uh, of the capital of the country, I think it's very important to, to show it. And I think you can tie yourself in, in knots sometimes by saying we don't want to give these people propaganda. And actually, if you saw these guys, I think they were condemned out of their own mouths. They weren't uh, articulating a particularly well-thought-out view of the world, to say the very least. They weren't persuasive. They weren't articulate. They were, they were maniacs, and, and they came across as maniacs. And I think if you worry too much, which is what some of the complaints are about, that you're giving too much attention to people who are so desperately clamouring for it, you're somehow ma- making them win. I don't really buy. I think that if something like this this brutal murder happens on, on our streets, we should uh, know about it. But I was doing Sky News the night of, of Woolwich. It was interesting. They didn't show the video that ITN had. ITN had it, and then everyone lifted it, including the BBC quite late on. But, I, but Sky took an editorial ethical decision which I thought was very interesting not to run it on the grounds both of taste because they were worried about upsetting their viewers but also not to give these people uh, um, sort of propaganda win. I'm not entirely sure I agree with it but it was interesting they took a very strong ethical editorial position. I I think newspapers and I think The Guardian was a a good example of that. I think they're right to show the stark reality of of what happened. And I see Chris Elliott, the, the reader's editor, kind of mounted a semi-recognition that it upset some people. He didn't quite say what he really thought about it, but I, I thought they were very powerful front pages, including the, I the Guardians and the Mails were very powerful front pages, and I, I, I think they're right to run them. Yeah, you mentioned Sky there, um, Maggie. I think Sky used, they used a still image, didn't they, of, of, the, of the incident uh, and nothing more. I think the following day they then used video but with the, with the, the knife or whatever blur, blurred out. Well, I'm afraid I was relying on American news. Well, what was the take, what was take in America? Service, oh, they were very uh, interested in it, and given that it, this is a, a country that prefers its own news and they were having massive tornadoes going on all over the place. No, there was a very, very big interest in it, partly, I think, because at the same time, remember, President Obama made a very um, long, hour-long speech about drones and the use of drones, the more ethical, you might call if if that could be possible, use of drones to target um, foreign terrorists um, at the same, uh, virtually on the sa- at the same point. And why it had such a, a chord, I think, with American listeners and viewers, is that uh, they have just had the Boston uh, marathon atrocity. And it, it seemed to chime with this view that, in a way, the biggest danger now is not so much coordinated attacks organised from abroad, but from the almost like, whether you call them renegade or lone wolf or uh, misguided youth of uh, either America or, as we saw in Woolwich, of, of the UK. So there was a huge interest in it. My view is that you cannot overly edit an atrocity like this, which has taken place in plain view in a very busy street, which so many people witnessed. And there are moments when we do need to be restrained. But I, I thought the full frontal coverage was the correct one to take in this in this case. The other point that's worth bearing in mind, which I think the PCC would be more interested in, will be the family of uh, the dead soldier. 
which is that they need to be protected from people bothering them. And from everything I've seen, that probably has happened. It will have, they'll have been protected from people knocking on their door too much. They didn't want to speak. And they, they did speak and they were very eloquent. And now I hope they'll be left alone. And that, I think, is more of an important ethical issue, is dealing with the, the people at the centre of it, the victims and their families. But just one further point, too. The Americans were very taken by the boldness and the... Uh, the, the charity, really, of the, the three women. Uh, and they were obviously women of colour as well, or so two of the women. Uh, I think that that was a major, um, almost like an extra factor which humanised the story, given the, the, the horrible nature of the, of, the, of the crime itself. OK, thank you, Maggie. Um, finally, in our press roundup this week, two stories closer to home. There's the launch of the Guardian's Australia edition, uh, which happened this week, and also the news of a move from uh, guardian.co.uk, as many of you will uh, be logging on, uh, but to theguardian.com. Uh, but Maggie, you've been on America, so you've been, what, you've been reading the Guardian's American edition, a sign indeed. of the global times we live in. Yes, I have. I mean, I have two thoughts about this. Of course, it's great that the Guardian is going international because uh, it's a brand that we respect and we know that um, we all do our best to report with integrity and truth and that we comment with a, a liberal point of view. The only problem I have, and, and I say this also on behalf of, um, certainly I, I was visiting my daughter, is that there is a lot of American news around. There's plenty of news online of an American kind. And one thing that shouldn't get lost is when, when, when you actually turn to theguardian.com, you do want to somehow retain that, I would say, almost British take because that is actually what makes it special. And I found it personally somewhat frustrating that in the order of stories you would get um, American stories, uh, perhaps second or even leading. And I, I think that I, and I haven't really had a chance to sam- sample the Australian take on things, but, and clearly you do have to have a raft of really good expert Australian journalists, which is what The Guardian has recruited. But I would still plead that what people turn to is something which isn't of an, an American sensibility. They want, you want to keep that British Guardian flavour in there and, and not dilute it to such an extent that you actually have to go searching for what you might call the unique British stories. And Stig, we're currently on, uh, The Guardian's currently on guardian.co.uk, guardiannews.com and, of course, m.guardian.co.uk. And uh, moving it to .com makes it easier for readers to, to, to find it. But uh, how does a domain change sort of make a difference to the way you're viewed? You know, how do you handle that shift? Well, there's an irony, irony here is because British journalism is, of course, much bewailed at home, you know, with, with Leveson and, and all of that. And yet it is also conquering the world. And, and I think that you're right. Maggie, that the reason why you turn, and this is true not just for The Guardian, the reason you turn to The Telegraph, because it, it, it has a certain British right-wing approach to things which you don't really get reproduced uh, in America. The Daily Mail is, I mean, is, is one of the most popular websites in, in newspaper websites in the world because of that some sort of bastard relationship between the US and the, and, the, and the UK. So I think that what's important is there is this sense of a British voice and, and the tradition in, in British newspapers, which is a sort of polemical campaigning uh, archness in taking a position and firmly with withstanding it uh, I think that is the tradition that people are really wanting to see if you go to America there's only I mean, apart from the New York Times there's really no great newspaper of note at all so I they think can't write snappy headlines as well I mean it's really very noticeable that we have a much better way maybe a, a slightly less respectful way with language but I mean our our use of color in in adjectives all the rest of it and just snappiness is, is really really noticeable so we've got a lot going for us I would just say great let's uh let's conquer the world as the guardian.com but please remember what it is you're actually offering which is a, a sense of a britishness and liberal values but presumably you want to make money 
from advertisers in in the US, and that's the great conundrum on all of this: is yes. that how how do you make any of this pay? And I presume that the real the trick will be putting adverts in in there that Americans will will want to click on, and therefore that's how you get get the revenue. So I totally understand that you are going to have to to to, to switch switch the mode of access to try and maximise the money. Um, but you're right; if if the if the British sort of tradition can, can continue, I think that would be the thing that's worth clinging on to. Okay, well we're back with more British and liberal views after this. This week on the Guardian Audio Edition, Leo Hickman meets Ingrid Leo Kennett, the woman dubbed the Woolwich Angel, Marcus de Sotoy on a big idea in physics, and in this week's audiobook review, we hear Antonia Fraser's perilous question and Daniel Dennett's intuition pumps and other tools for thinking. To subscribe for free to the Guardian Audio Edition, go to audible.co.uk forward slash guardian or find us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Audioboo. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture. Maggie and Stig are still with me and let's take a look at some of the other media stories of the week. Uh, In uh, TV news, Arrested Development was back, but not as it was before. The uh, sitcom used to be on Fox, now it's on Netflix and all 15 episodes of the new run became available at the same time. That was the good news. The bad news was that it got mixed reviews from critics and fans and and as a result, Netflix stock fell 6%. Stig, this isn't the sort of thing we see uh, in the UK. Certainly ITV stock doesn't uh, rise and fall so dramatically on the back of one series. If it did, uh, you know, well, I'd have loved to have seen it when uh, Celebrity Wrestling was on. But uh, that's a long time ago. Uh, I'd like to see celebrity wrestling again. Actually, now that, now that you mention it, uh, no, I mean I think it's extraordinary that and but Netflix did, did this with House of Cards. That was their great uh, the show, and that really did do so well for them. And I, I think it's extraordinary though that the share price can can rise and fall based on the performance of one show. Particularly bearing in mind if you look at the reviews, they're not actually that bad. And 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 there's one of those websites that aggregates the reviews, and it puts it at sort of seventy two out of a hundred, which is in the good to very good uh, scale. So. I think I wonder if it's one of those blips as everyone's just getting used to to this as a, a new approach because I can't see the next time they produce a show there'll be quite a bigger swing as a, as a result of a, a poor review here and there. Uh, Maggie, there was plenty of hype about it over here, but what was it like in the states? Oh gosh, it was hugely, hugely hyped. I mean, it seems to me it's that what, what's actually happening is that Netflix is almost using the kind of budgets that we see thrown behind a, a big, big movie. Uh, I mean, it was front page news in the New York Times Arts uh, and Culture thing. And, of course, they released it on Monday, which was Veterans Day, which is a bank holiday, so that the idea was that, um, you know, prosperous uh, people would have their barbecue and then they would maybe go inside and, if they were addicts, turn and, and watch, have a... Have a, a marathon. Um, oh, a marathon, indeed, on yeah. Arrested Development. One of the problems that... Uh, Netflix has is that um, it, it said that, for example, um, House of Cards, when it was launched in February, helped drive subscriptions, maybe two million extra subscriptions. So it's a young company having to continually uh, market itself as a, as a forward growth uh, a subscription service at a point when in America cable fees are so high, monthly cable fees are so high that there's a real reaction and kickback against it. So it has to make absolute, get maximum juice out of uh, any exclusive uh, content like this. And in this case, it's said to have cost £200 million. It was always a cult show anyway. So the reason the stock falls is that unless it's superb and talked about and absolutely must have and we can't watch it any other way, uh, it's not going to drive subscriptions. This is what it's about. I, what I dislike about Netflix is that 
it's not actually prepared to even release any figures about how many people actually watched it or downloaded it or did whatever or stored it or whatever they wanted to do with it. And I think that that um, is a sign of uh, a kind of a weakness. I know it's a different business model, but it just doesn't seem transparent enough to me. If I was an investor, anyway, you have to take their um, you have to take the sort of word for it when they say yeah. that more people watch House of Cards than say saw Mad Men on Sky Atlantic. Yeah. But you know, I mean, without the you know without the stats. Yeah. Who's to say? Would they ever do entirely original? Because uh, I suppose House of Cards is a is a was a, re- it's was a remake, remake effectively, yes. uh, and the rest of development is a continuation of a. Of a and of they've a show done Sense8, which was which was a sort of sci-fi thing. So what they're doing is they're dropping into their mix of everything else, which isn't new, uh, exclusive content to hook people in it's, and to buy. But it's, but it's not exclusive content since it's not entirely brand new. No, well, I mean they may do. I mean they they may go on to the reason Arrested Development was ran for three series before Fox cancelled it. And the ratings fell and fell and fell, but it had this kind of hardcore, what you might call trendies, who were watching it because of the nature of its kind of ultra reality comic stuff with a, with a trendies. Yeah, John's eyes lit up when the word trendy was mentioned. So, so, so it was, so well, it was nice addictive it. to those who loved it, and so that was the point about it that they're hoping that they, you know, seven years on, they 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 grab back all the officials. But would there be enough of them to to make a, a big enough difference to the subscription? Well, we just don't know. Yeah. yeah. That's the big dilemma for Netflix, yeah. And also, it turns out there were apparently 100,000 illegal downloads of the series this week. Uh, still far less than there were of Game of Thrones, but it's still a, a major headache for, for content platforms and broadcasters. Which brings me on to a new Ofcom report, which said that almost a third of web users who stream or download content did so at least once illegally in a three-month period last year. So that's one in three uh, uh, downloading something illegally. Uh, uh, I'm surprised. Like, this higher than I'd have thought. Maybe I'm naive and, and 40, 41, which I am. Well, I'm definitely 41. Probably naive. Stig, are you either of those things? I am naive. I'm probably one of the few people in, in the world. Who, I've never downloaded anything illegally, but not because I, I'm, I'm a, a, a fine, moral, upstanding person, as, as you might guess. But I, I don't, I've never quite sort of grasped the urge to watch something so desperately that I've just wanted to, to, to go and do it. I think a third is, I'm surprised it's not higher, actually. Maggie, have you downloaded anything legally first? Uh no, but I have been in the presence of people. But I've been in the presence of people who do, and uh, <laughs> namely, I would say I have a twenty-year-old student son, and what I notice about them and their student house is they don't have a TV; uh, they just watch what they want when they want on their on their laptops or their tablets, and then maybe fiddle around with uh, wires. And I think that that is uh, that, that is what's really going on amongst. I'd say the under twenty-fives are, are really, really heavily. To it. Maggie, just... you hear this noise? Yeah, it's the police knocking at your son's door. He's going to be really grateful to you. Isn't <laughs> well, he doesn't live with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right, Mum. And finally, this week, we turn our attention to the BBC. What do you mean about time? We always talk about the BBC. Uh, but today, and I've just come back, well, I'll tell you, I was very excited. I got an email saying uh, from the BBC saying, Glastonbury invite. Imagine the excitement. Yeah. Turns out it was an invite to their Glastonbury launch. Uh, but the BBC has announced that they will be streaming 250 hours of live coverage. You'll have to watch that online on your tablet or iPhone or whatever. Uh, there'll also be 34 hours of TV coverage and 59 hours on the radio, including Radio 2 in a big way for the first time. And also BBC One for the first time. So, uh, Maggie, it's kind of uh, Glastow's gone mainstream. Well, I thought it had gone Olympics, actually. What struck me about it was that the coverage and the plan with uh, the different red button options uh, from the different stages struck me as almost a complete takeaway from uh, the Olympics last year, which I thought worked brilliantly. And I actually think this, this sounds really good because I've never gone to Glastonbury. I would never go to Glastonbury, but I am not... You're very posh, Maggie. <laughs> no, but I'm too old, but I couldn't possibly... <laughs> 
all cope with the mud and, the, and I imagine the loose but the point is that there are <laughs> really good acts and but obviously they've had to cut between them so if you can actually choose which band or group or whatever it is you want to watch that's fantastic presumably they'll be criticized for the amount of money they're spending on on this won't they because the, the olympics because actually i think you're absolutely right about the parallel with the olympics but that's seen as a sort of great unifying event for the whole country and i i, I can foresee some critical headlines in some newspapers saying this is the bbc spending a lot of money yeah, on, but on they're a, wrong because on a you know festival. the point is now the bbc has to make the most of every big asset it has and it has to use it in different ways it can't just say oh we're here and we're just putting it out and edited bits and highlights here on one channel if it's happening and it's a big big festival it is correct that that, that that it does it in this sort of big way because that's really the way the world is because there are other other rights that it's it's losing the same goes for for uh, sport as well so when it does something yes it should go in with both feet and and really make a make but a it's got to do it, I, I agree but it's got to do it efficiently hasn't it Cause the problem that you worry about sometimes with the bbc is that when it's 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 doing it across multiple platforms what it's not doing is taking the same content and and, and moving it around like you say to make as a bigger deal of it as possible but of course it's got to be efficient i mean the, the bbc is not as efficient as it could be and there are many examples of it including uh, it's it's uh, a mess over its digital uh, media project but uh, it that it good management is one thing but separately the, the way forward is to exploit assets, including programming, in a lot of different ways, reusing program, you know, re- repeating programs, digital uh, channels coming to back up, maybe the main BBC One and BBC Two. All those things need to be rethought in, in, in the age that we're in now. And still with Glastonbury, I think it remains to be seen, so we've been told, um, how much of the, uh, the Rolling Stones sort of headline performance they'll show uh, and whether it will be live, uh, rights issues apparently. But that would be a surprise, wouldn't it, if that didn't happen? What, you mean we're not going to actually hear the performance in full? Or be well, it, well it remains to be seen, yes. Do you remember last time around Leonard Cohen wouldn't, wouldn't give them any permission yes, to I show do, any of his sets? So. But this is the Stones' 50th anniversary. How can they cheat their fans in that moment? Well, I'm sure, that, I'm sure it'll happen in some way, but, but apparently negotiations continue, so... Uh, I have been locked down before they make their big announcements of, of the great splash that they're making with their digital coverage, you know, showing absolutely everything from the, the toilets upwards at Glastonbury that they might not show the, uh, the headline act live. Well, we shall wait and see. But Maggie, before I talked about the Stones, you mentioned the digital media initiative, the DMI uh, fiasco, which has cost the uh, licence fee pay, well, the best part of 100 million quid. I think it's really, really serious uh, because... One of the things about a properly managed BBC is that if a project isn't working, it should have been abandoned or it should be abandoned far earlier than this stage now when you've you've basically spent £100 million getting nowhere. And given that when you read the letters that have gone backwards and forwards uh, between Anthony Fry and the Public Accounts Committee, given the fact that the project was clearly in trouble long before this, in fact it was in trouble almost from the start when they gave the initial proposal to Siemens who then um, were, were removed. This uh, is all about me making the BBC tapeless. Yes, yeah, so almost like a YouTube channel that you can grab content if you're making a programme or audio from any other part of the BBC so that in, in theory it's a very seamless way of, um, if you like, cutting and pasting. Uh, no, th- th- but this clearly is a project that is, is, is just too gigantic and, and has been overtaken anyway by, by developments. But the real thing about it, it just shows bad management at the BBC and, and a lack of uh, real, what you might, might call, financial control. When projects like this are given to an executive, it's in the interests of the, the team concerned to keep, keep them going. But what actually needs to happen in any other commercial organisation, you need to have an oversight 
so that you could say, no, this isn't working, and pull it. There's no shame in pulling something that isn't working. And what this revealed, because it has gone on since uh, really 2008, is that there was no real um, oversight or proper reporting back to both uh, the BBC Trust and one suspects maybe even the Executive Committee. Uh, I, I suspect that this has come out partly now with the change of Director General because it's very hard for an incumbent to admit that uh, one of these big technology projects which the BBC has famously always loved to do and which seemed to be working with iPlayer has gone so terribly wrong. Um, Stig, Nick Pollard, I remember when he unveiled the Pollard report, he talked about the BBC existing in a bubble and the, the impact on the culture of having no, um, not having to worry about the bottom line. And this sort of feels like another sort of exhibit of that. It does, and, and, and t- it, the, sort of the Tony Hall honeymoon does continue in that he's still able in this situation, like you say, because he wasn't involved with any of this, to, to send those very headmasterly emails that he sends around uh, and gets leaked immediately and, and, and appears on Media Guardian, where he, where he sounds very tough and, and very sad when the BBC have cocked something up and we must never learn from these mistakes and never, it must never happen again. But the te- next test will be under his watch when something happens, because it, he, it's very easy when you join when you join an organisation to constantly be apologising for things you never did uh, because you, it was your predecessor. But there is a pressure on the BBC because I think uh, going back now, it's been a really bad year for the BBC or bad few months. And the test will always be, are you acting with the discipline of a commercial institution? And you speak to people from in, in broadcasting from commercial institutions, they'll always tell you the BBC doesn't really have regard for its bottom line. It doesn't have any of the efficiencies that you would expect from it. And this is a terrible, I mean, it's a hundred million pounds. It's a terrible example of a project that looked doomed to failure from the beginning and then was kept artificially alive by people not concerned ever about making money or getting value for money. Uh, and then Tony Hall sends email saying this must be never allowed to happen again. Well, that will be the real test of his reign uh, at the BBC, whether this type of uh, white elephant project happens or doesn't happen again. I think it's going to have an impact on uh, licence fee negotiations as well, because it just is further proof that, as you say, public money is not necessarily being used in the correct manner. OK, and that's it for this part of the show. Uh, Maggie Brown and Stig Abel, thank you very much. Time for part three now, and we're going to talk TV as ever. What else did you expect with Rebecca Nicholson? How are you doing? Uh, hello, I'm all right. Excellent. Now, there is a, you know, I'm no expert, but I can detect a historical theme there. Uh, first up, the return to CBBC of horrible histories. Yes, the clue that it's historical may well be in the title. Well, that's right. The, 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 the thing gets harder to spot later on, but let's start here. Yeah, go <laughs> on. Yeah. Uh, now, this is a program I've never seen, but I think I should have done. You should watch it, I think. Um, do you have kids? Uh, a two-year-old. Then perhaps it's it might give it a bit. This is going to go over your two-year-old's head, right. but it's just a very good sketch show. I think what whatever age you are, whatever your level of interest in history, it's informative and it's very funny. I mean, I say for a kids' show in a slightly patronising way, but as a sketch show, every sketch seems to hit the mark, and I think that's quite rare. And also, it taught me something about Archimedes. It taught me something about Victorian makeup through the medium of a Made in Chelsea spoof. There's a Ross Kemp on Gangs spoof. And it's this just, is on kids' TV? It's all on kids' TV. And it should be primetime BBC Two, at it least. It really should be primetime BBC yeah. Two. Or at least it would be... I wonder what would happen if it got a kind of later slot. Is there any suggestion that might happen? Or I um, don't know. Everyone looks very fondly on it, and it's got a good reputation, but I think, I mean, it, it is obviously still a kids' show. It's just very funny. Oh, in fact, producer Matt tells me he had actually played in primetime BBC One. Oh, yeah, they did an adult's version, didn't they? But so that wasn't great. 
in one sense, I was being very clever by suggesting it should be on prime time because I didn't know it had been. But in <laughs> another sense, pretending to be an expert, like, entirely mm, uninformed because it had already been on. But anyway, I should look at that next week. Uh, and another program. Now, this historical theme not necessarily so obvious. Um, Up the women. Up the women. This is a BBC Four comedy. It's been written by Jessica Hines of. Uh, Space fame. Space fame and RTS Awards fame. Oh, yeah, 2012. 2012. Yeah, for younger, for, for younger listeners, 2012. Space uh, used to be a sitcom on uh, Channel 4, produced by OWT. Anyway, carry on. Yes, I was a huge fan of Space. I have the DVDs. Uh, I once met someone and we, we ended up talking about Spaced and she said, oh yeah, I think I've seen that on YouTube. And the fact that I used to watch it in my student house made me feel uh, very, very, very old. old. There's a spin-off, Spaced 1999, which was uh, about a, a couple who shared a flat on the moon and he got blasted yeah. out of lunar orbit. Yeah, That's, That's one for really old That's listeners. Really anyway, so great. Up the Women. <laughs> um, written by Jessica Hines and it's of a suffragette-based suffra- <laughs> suffra- comedy. Which is not a phrase you hear every day. It's not a phrase you hear every day, but it's very of the moment. There's a lot of suffragette business about it's 100 years since Emily Davison died. And I really wanted to love this. Uh-oh. It's got lots of people that I like in it. Rebecca Front is in it. Really good cast. Interesting premise. Suffragette comedy. But it's just, it feels very old-fashioned. And a little bit Radio 4. And it's... Ooh. Yeah, but I mean, you could close your eyes and which I'm doing for the benefit of absolutely nobody, just closing my eyes to do it myself. I can confirm that. Um, and it doesn't, you don't, there's no, nothing visual about it. It's just lots of kind of zingy lines, but not quite zingy enough. It's, it's pleasant, but it, it isn't quite the thing I'd hoped it would be. Radio 4 comedy, that's a, that's a phrase to give you the fear, but we'll, we'll return to that topic maybe another week. it's a little week. bit Radio 4. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, that's the series, though, isn't it? But you won't be returning to it. Three episodes. Right. It's a mini series. I've seen the first two. I will watch the third one. I don't think it's terrible. Just find out what happens. I just, yeah. They get the vote. We, hey. <laughs> um, and uh, moving on, uh, Psycho Bitches. Well, this is also uh, on the same evening as Up the Women. This is Sky Arts, part of their Playhouse Presents Strand. And this is great. This is a real cracker. It's uh, directed by Jeremy Dyson from League of Gentlemen. A couple of the League of Gentlemen gentlemen pop up in it in various guises. But the premise is uh, women from history in a therapy session talking to Rebecca Front, who plays this kind of straight uh, The ubiquitous Rebecca Front, by the, the sounds of it. The ubiquitous yeah. Rebecca Front. She must never have a break. And uh, it's, there's, it's, just, it's very funny. It's very dark. It's darker than I expected. And actually, having watched that after Up the Women, it was pleasingly dark. Um, but you have Sharon Horgan playing... Ava Perron, um, there's Audrey Hepburn in there, Julia Davis is Sylvia Plath. This is a lot funnier than it sounds. My God, the yeah. talent involved. It's absolutely brilliant cast, huge writing team, although disappointingly not as many women on the writing team as you might expect from something that's so female-centric. Nevertheless, it's a very, very funny show. Very dark, lots of League of, League of Gentlemen moments in it. With Mark Gattis in it as well, yeah? Yes, he plays... Uh, you can see this on the Guardian TV website. He plays... Beautifully done. Joan Crawford. In of course he does. excellent sketch with Francis Barber as Betty Davis. And they loathe each other. It's very, very funny. There's Sat next to Virginia Woolf is in there. My, my only slight complaint, which isn't really a complaint, but it's quite comedy for English literature graduates... There are, there's a sketch with the Bronte sisters in there. Um, are you saying it's a bit Radio 4? No, this really isn't Radio 4. It's a bit... I don't know what its radio equivalent would be. 
that. Well, we'll have to leave it there for this week. I think Sky Arts just had the nod over BBC Four there, but uh, CBBC, uh, well, that beat both of them. My thanks to all this week's guests, who were, in no particular order, uh, except the one I read them out in, Mr. Stig Abel and uh, Maggie Brown and Rebecca Nicholson. You can leave your thoughts on this week's show on our Facebook wall or our blog, or you can tweet me at johnplunkett149. Media Talk is produced, as ever, by the award-winning Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.